Welcome to Just a GP podcast. My name is Ashley Broomfield and I am joined today by Rebecca Hoffman, Charlotte Hesby and our special guest, Melanie Considine. Welcome everybody. Thank you. So what is your highlight of the week, Mel? Well, it's a it's a personal highlight where I have just managed to run five kilometres after uh, working on the Couch to 5K app. So I had never been a runner and I thought, I need to get into something to improve my fitness and also my mental health and have a little bit of time out. And it's been a a fair process to get to this point, but with some persistence and some encouragement from my husband, Jerry, it's been really good. I feel great to be able to now run five kilometers. It's not always that long, but yeah, we're, we're getting there. And did you know there's a zombies to 5k where it's the same thing? It's catch to 5k, but the track is zombies chasing you and you've got to run away from the zombies. Uh, no, I haven't heard of that one. Actually, it was interesting <laughs> when your voice came in, then it, it was really slow. And I thought you were having a laugh and pretending to be a zombie ash. So, um, I might have to look that one up anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and what about you, Beck? My highlight of the week was a very long time coming. I have given my PhD proposal. So I've been spending probably the last 18 months writing what I anticipate I'll be doing over the next few years with my PhD, but I've presented it to a group of my peers at the university and they've had a look through it and asked plenty of questions and have approved me to now go ahead and officially start my PhD. So that's very exciting. Excellent. And what's your topic? So I'm looking at motherhood and medicine and how women actually do both at the same time and what barriers and supports they have that either help or hinder that happening. So that's totally irrelevant for today's episode. That's uh, very strategic of you, Beck. (laughs) And Charlotte, what's your highlight? You've been very busy of late. I have been very busy of late, Ash, and part of that business has been I've just spent a week over in the Philippines. Uh, So this is a project I've been involved with for the last eight years, and um, I go twice a year. And this particular time I took, well, the team was 41. So I took 39 people with me and there were two, there's two people, Filipinos who are part of our team who are over there. So the highlight for me actually was re um, linking with the patients that I and the community that I'm working with and just seeing how much the improvement in their health and some of the things that we're sort of working with them on and a particular excitement was that one of the young people that we've sponsored with education and assisted over the time we've been doing that has gotten into medicine and that's pretty amazing when you consider he comes from a community that had really they have absolutely nothing and when we first met them they were lucky if they if he was fed a cup of rice a day and he wasn't able to access school because there was no school to be able to go to so that's pretty exciting yeah, awesome. You seem to have a bit of uh, planes going around as well. So we'll have some planes and some trucks. And unfortunately today, no dogs from my side because my little doggy is going to stay with my mum for the night. Well, I might be able to throw a dog in or two. Oh, excellent. Okay. So my personal highlight is uh, work-related. As I've said a couple of times on this podcast, I've been working on having a wellbeing weekend that the New South Wales and ACT RACGP faculty was hosting and it was open for registration roughly about a week ago and we've had about 25% of our allocated slots taken up already 
And I'm super excited and looking forward to it going ahead. And that's going to be the second weekend in March. So the 9th and 10th of March. It's really exciting. I'll introduce Mel now. Mel is a GP working in rural South Australia. She is the vice chair of the ROCGP National Rural Faculty. She's a mother of two beautiful babies and GP extraordinaire. Anything you wanted to add to that, Mel? Oh, well, that is very kind, Ash. Thank you for the lovely introduction. No, that that about covers it. There are a few other roles that I perform, but I think many of us have multiple roles. So thank you. Today, we commandeered you to come on our podcast to talk about what it's like being a GP when you have babies, which is very similar to Beck's PhD topic. And that's really exciting. And we'd like you to start by telling a little bit about your story about when you first had Bernie and what that was like for you and how you, um, the difficulties that you kind of faced as a, as a GP. Yes, thank you. Well, Bernie is now two and three quarters and quite vivacious and pushing the boundaries, <laughs> all of those things that two and a half to three-year-olds are supposed to do. So he's beautiful. When I fell pregnant with Bernie, it was a planned pregnancy. Jerry and I were planning family of two or three maybe, children if we were able to. And everything was going really well with the pregnancy. I was very lucky that there were no major complications. And I suppose I just had in my mind that I would breastfeed. And I thought, oh, well, I haven't done this before. I will attend an antenatal class and I'll attend a breastfeeding class just like anyone else would. And I really wanted to make it clear to the people running the classes that if they knew that I was a GP, that even with that background, that having not breastfed before, I really don't know that much about it. And it's I understand that it's a learnt skill and that I would like as much information as possible before I attempted it. Uh, so I attended an antenatal class in our local town here in Clare, and that was a wonderful way to meet other new parents. So both Jerry and I attended that and we've we've maintained lots of friendships through there, which has been wonderful. And I also attended a breastfeeding education class at Ashford Hospital where I was to deliver with Bernie. And that was really interesting. I thought at the time that it was very good advice and we, you know, used little baby mannequin baby dolls to practice and she kind of showed a couple of ways that you can a couple of positions that you can breastfeed in. And I suppose talked about very in very basic details how to build up a breast milk supply but I suppose at the time I probably didn't take that in very much and just thought oh yes well you know if I try and I'm I'm determined it will work and that was unfortunately not really very well guided (laughs) and I suppose my expectations really didn't match the reality that was apparent once Bernie was born. Things initially actually started out I felt very well and I remember thinking to myself at about one month postpartum oh, look, I'm really lucky. Things are actually going really well with breastfeeding because at that point his weight gains had been pretty good. I had had a little bit of a postpartum hemorrhage and that had thrown a bit of a spanner in the works. I had to take some antibiotics and I was a little bit worried about timing of feeds around the doses of the antibiotics and I didn't really have very much advice on that from my GP here locally. She wasn't really sure um, and neither was I. And I suppose one other thing just to mention at this point was in hospital, we had a paediatrician come and assess Bernie just as a routine neonatal examination. And he was great, like really um, interactive, but he was very, very rushed and he would he would smooth over things, I think, with the expectation that I would already know the answer to what he was saying. Way, But he did say something like, oh, 
you know, feed feed three to four hourly. And I thought, oh, well, that kind of fits with what I was taught in medical school, that most babies tend to feed three to four hourly. So I suppose I almost got it in my head and it was a bit of a preconceived idea that my baby shouldn't need to feed any more than that. And if he did, well, then, you know, it was something else, like he was cold or he was had a dirty nappy or something. So that, I suppose, feeds into then what was happening later down the track. I developed a blocked duct at about four weeks and it sort of seemed to be a bit of a vicious spiral downward after that where my supply just wasn't sufficient to meet his needs and part of the issues I think feeding into it was that I was probably just focusing a little bit too much on timing feeds and sticking a little bit to sort of a maybe two three four hourly schedule where in fact my baby and also with my storage capacity for milk my production capacity for milk I needed to feed more frequently so he started to lose weight. He dropped below the second percentile and went back to the pediatrician. And the advice was to express and look at how much I was making. And I thought, well, that doesn't sound very easy to do when I'm stressed and sleep deprived. And there wasn't really advice on how to actually build up my supply. And he just said, you know, give him formula, give him um, top ups. And I thought, oh, I just don't feel comfortable with this. I really wanted to breastfeed. And anyway, it it was it was a bit a bit downward from there, and I had quite a tough time. And in the end, I, I did mix feed Bernie, and he gained weight fine after that. But I, I suppose I felt like a bit of a failure as a mum, and that as a health professional too, that I should have known what to do, and I should have been able to troubleshoot when I was in this situation for myself. But yeah, so there were I suppose lots of feelings of failure and frustration and sadness um, and grief and loss at at what I had hoped would happen with breastfeeding and and what didn't turn out. I suppose something that really shocked me was the emotional attachment I developed with breastfeeding really shocked me. I didn't expect that because as a health professional, I felt if a person has to use formula or needs to top up or or chooses to bottle feed or chooses to formula feed, that's totally fine. And that's actually what I do believe. But when it came to my own experience, I was really, really, really desperate to breastfeed and that actually really took me by surprise. So from my perspective, I'm really interested, Mel, in your experience of the healthcare input because it is, it's this sort of interesting line that we walk, isn't it, where as a health professional you expect that you know and that you're well-informed and that that will then um, sort of help inform your experience in a way that makes it easier in one respect. Then and that the health professionals don't that they sort of treat you in a slightly different way. I mean, even that story about you and your GP not really being sure about the antibiotics and you went and looked up on the, you know, website. It's sort of like it's that sort of interesting um sort of tag team. And then going to that that feeling of, well, you know, theoretically I'm not tied to it, yet really deep down inside emotionally you are and that sense of description that you said you know I felt like I I was a failure yeah I totally reflect what you've just said Charlotte in I suppose I felt a little bit helpless as a health professional in the medical system that I suppose as a patient and a medical professional we also walk a bit of a fine line because you don't want to sound like you're questioning the health professional that you are seeking advice from or or stepping on their toes but on the other hand, if if you have a feeling that perhaps there's a different way about things or that maybe the advice that you're getting isn't as evidence-based as you would like or, or as up-to-date as you would like, then, you know, do you speak up at the time or do you just go and see someone else for a second opinion or do you just do it yourself? So, yes, it's a, it's a challenge, isn't it? And it very much is a fine line. And I suppose 
that's one of the reasons that I've really actually developed quite a passion now for breastfeeding and lactation study um, and education of women in these areas and support of women in these areas. And and that's not to say that I think every mother has to breastfeed at all costs. That's absolutely not what I'm saying. But I suppose what I felt was lacking in my experience was skilled breastfeeding advice, probably particularly from medical professionals, paediatricians and GPs. Uh, and in my town, we didn't have, well, we still don't have a lactation consultant. And I'd heard lots about lactation consultants. So I did actually seek out a lactation consultant in a neighbouring town and also in Adelaide, which was very helpful. And I felt quite empowering for me. Um, she just was able to show me a few different ways to troubleshoot and, and to give me some ideas on gastric emptying time in an infant and the differences between the physiology of of one person's lactating breast compared to the next person's and the storage capacity such that, you know, maybe even sometimes feeding in 40 minutes time, again, would potentially be within normal. So for me, that was quite a learning curve and it was quite reassuring. So I was able to build my supply, but it was never quite sufficient to meet my child's needs at that time. And I was okay with that then. I felt I've given in the best start that I can within my physiology um, So and, and learned along the way. So, so now I'm actually studying to become a lactation consultant in my GP practice. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? And it just shows how sometimes having that personal experience gives you an added depth of insight into what it feels like and how you relate to the emotional sense. I mean, I certainly relate, Mel, to that sort of feeling of the emotional connection to what breastfeeding is. And when you're talking to a patient, how that may actually be a different thing from actually the sort of the concrete thing of, you know, you need to use bottled milk. I have a number of women that I've looked after who will persist in doing everything absolutely possible to try and maintain breastfeeding, even though every single person around them is telling them that they they don't need to and that they can use an alternative feeding. But that emotional need to actually feed seems to be so much a stronger driver than than that sort of advice. Yes, I agree with you. I think I feel as though there must be some sort of evolutionary drive for that. I don't know. It's just it really took me by surprise how attached to breastfeeding I became. And I, I think I think most, if not all, women know the message of breast is best. But I suppose I like to think in my mind that there's a caveat on that that it's if possible, like if you can and, and if it's if you're able to make sufficient supply. And I suppose one of the things that really irritated me was that everything I read was like, oh, you know, most women have sufficient, are able to produce sufficient milk for their babies. You know, most women are able to make enough milk for twins, for instance. And I'm thinking, well, that hasn't applied to me. And and you know, even second time around, knowing what I knew after my first experience, I fed and fed and fed and I did all the right things, you know, inverted commas, and I still didn't have sufficient supply for my second child and have had to mix feed him as well. And I've come to terms with that now as well. And that's that's fine. He's doing really well. We're both doing really well. But I suppose it's just, you know, that nothing's black and white. And I certainly don't want to give off the message that women need to breastfeed at all costs because there are not just physical costs, but there can be quite significant psychological costs as well. And especially when it's not working out, 
and the reality is not meeting the expectations. I think that's where something that I'm learning within the study that I'm doing about acceptance and commitment therapy is actually really helpful in this instance. Yeah, I think that's helpful from where I sit too. And also the sort of the need to be able to understand what are the drivers for others and the expectations. It's sort of similar to, I suppose, to completely different, but it's a bit like when you have a miscarriage at say eight weeks or six to eight weeks where that actually drives a hugely intense grief reaction because of what you've lost of your expectation. And yet those around you have got no, often no understanding at all about the intensity of the grief and what it is that that woman and or their partner is going through. Absolutely. And especially at that stage, it's it's quite a hidden thing for most couples too. So very challenging. And I suppose in this sense, breastfeeding can be a hidden challenge for a lot of women too, because thankfully there is a lot more support for breastfeeding in public these days. And there may well be many women who don't feel comfortable, even if there's a supportive community around them, they might be having trouble with breastfeeding and so don't want to breastfeed in public because it might not be working so well. So there's so many things that can feed into it. And so I suppose I've got a lot more empathy and understanding of mothers and well, and parents, you know, the, the dad trying to support the mum breastfeeding, the parents-in-law, other siblings around. It really does take a village. It's interesting, isn't it, Mel? And listening to you talk, I'm I'm reflecting on how often in, in the medical profession in, in relation to feeding and also infant sleep and settling that we can often get very focused on the doing and that this is what you need to do and this is the approach you need to take. And I'm not sure that we're that great at reflecting and and spending the time to understand the complexities of emotions at this time. And uh, you talked a little bit about ACT therapy, which I'm a massive fan of as well. And that that normalisation that this is a really difficult situation and it's okay and, yes, you may be feeling symptoms of guilt and shame and worthlessness or despair and that's normal and it's okay to share that and it's okay to share that with us as providers and it's okay to share that with your close ones and recognise that that's part of the process that we need to kind of work through as well. Yeah, absolutely. That's been one of the main things I think that helped get me through my first born and postpartum period was learning a little bit of acceptance and commitment therapy through Possum's Clinic in Queensland with Pamela Douglas, who's a GP lactation consultant there. And I'm still doing a little bit of study with her um, called Neurodevelopmental Protective Care. So there's a group of GPs who are doing a course with her online, which has been excellent. And I suppose for me, it was even learning a little bit more about empathy and clarifying your values. So so trying to focus on why am I so attached to this? What is it that's driving this emotion in me? And how could I perhaps focus more on my true values as a person and maybe trying to sort of clarify the top three to five values? Or as a parent, I found that really, really helpful personally. And I've been able to then translate that into my general practice work. Mm, It's very translatable into general practice in terms of all all aspects I find. I'm um, a yeah, massive fan. Yes, certainly not just for breastfeeding, but a- anything. <laughs> I reflected on a lot of what you just said, Mel, and I had quite a lot of feeding and breastfeeding problems with both of my bums. And I actually found the whole situation quite isolating being mum. 
um, and it wasn't a situation that I was used to. I was interested in really what you changed about your support networks and who you looked to and what your advice is for other mums with their support networks if they're struggling through that early period. The support that I had pre-pregnancy was very much husband, close family, so my brother and sister-in-law and my mum who live in the same town as me. So that makes it obviously a bit easier to access the support. And in this postpartum period, I was able to draw upon that parent group that we developed through CAFS or Child and Youth Health, as it's otherwise known, where we would meet up. We developed a little Facebook group and we contacted each other and we were able to meet up at each other's houses once a week and really get to know each other. And it was mostly the mums and the babies in the group. And the vast majority of these women were breastfeeding, at least at the start. And so we were able to talk about that and the challenges and the joys And I suppose I just felt really comfortable in that setting, talking about some of the challenges that I was having and seeking support from these women. And they were wonderful. I was just very lucky to have such a great group of people to be able to share that with. So, And still obviously had really good support from my close family, my husband. They were willing to do whatever they could. And I could see in them that they were thinking those things, you know, you don't have to do this. You don't have to stress yourself out so much about breastfeeding if it's just not working you know, don't worry so much about it. But I suppose when when you're not the person doing it and experiencing those really strong emotions, it's it's very, very difficult to let it go. Yeah, I agree. And I guess that's translatable to lots of different parts of our jobs in medicine, you know, whether it's a cancer diagnosis or a, a chronic disease management diagnosis or a loss of, of something that we're helping people to work through that idea of holding on to or allowing it to go can be can be a really tough thing to establish. Beck, I was interested for you to chat a little bit about what you found beneficial when you were going through some issues with breastfeeding. I had, well, it seems that almost the exact opposite problems as to what Mel had. I had enough supply to feed an army, but Bub actually just wouldn't latch on, just wouldn't come to the, well, would come to the breast quite happily, but couldn't get a latch onto the nipple that would then sustain suckling. So had plenty to supply, but couldn't actually get it to Bub. I tried everything and I was one of those particularly stubborn mums who wanted to breastfeed and wanted to try everything. So I tried everything from hand expressing to expressing to nipple shields to lactation consultants to you name it, I tried it. With my first, I ended up expressing for nine months and bottle feeding, which isn't something which I would particularly encourage patients to do unless that was something that they very, very, very much wanted to do because it is really hard work. And then with number two, when things again weren't going the right way, went to expressing as well, but couldn't sustain it for quite as long as I wanted to. And I absolutely agree with the feeling of loss and trauma and not doing what you feel that you should be able to do. That's something that took a long time to work through and that's fine and my two babies are now beautiful and happy and healthy and none the wiser for how long they were fed for or in which method they were fed for. But it's something that I now make sure I broach with all of my patients regardless of how or what source they're feeding, just the emotions that go along with whatever type of feeding that they're doing as well. 
I was particularly interested in something, though, that you'd mentioned about what you're doing now, so what you're doing now with your patients and what extra work you've done in breastfeeding education since your experience. I didn't mention I did have <laughs> I did have quite a few other issues other than just low supply. So I suppose I, uh, I had lots of blocked ducts. I had some mastitis. Um, fortunately, never had nipple pain, interestingly. So there's been a lot of a lot of issues that I've had to work through. And I suppose if it was just the one issue, it might not have stimulated me quite so much. But when I had so many different issues to deal with, I really felt I wanted to learn more about it. And so one of the tracks I'm going down is to become a lactation consultant through the International Board of Lactation Consultant Examiners. So it's not a protected title in Australia and there's quite a broad range of LCs out there with different backgrounds. Many, I think, probably have a bit of a nursing or midwifery background. There's not very many GP lactation consultants out there. And there's quite a few controversial ideas going around out there about breastfeeding and um, tongue ties and other oral ties, which I suppose I'm just hopeful coming perhaps from a slightly different perspective and working with Dr. Pamela Douglas in Queensland to try and come at this with a little bit more of an evidence-based background because there does seem to be a little bit of misinformation going out there and potential to stress out new mums and I think potential to harm children as well if, if things aren't curtailed a little bit with some of this industry. So that was one of the factors that drove me to want to become an LC, I suppose, to have a little bit more credibility in this area with that title, but also obviously to educate myself more as a GP. I really don't feel that in medical school or GP training, I had enough education around breastfeeding or the the nuances of that. And I suppose, how can you? We've got to cover so much in our medical training. So so the way I'm doing that is through um, a course called Australasian Lactation Courses. And the course I'm doing with Dr. Pamela Douglas um, through Possums Education is for neurodevelopmental protective care accreditation. So that's looking a lot more well, at the whole picture with breastfeeding, but also with a lot of acceptance and commitment therapy strategies, which I've found obviously excellent in, as we've said, many different areas in our day-to-day consultations. So it's been very helpful. It's great when you can actually add to your clinical skills through the experience that you have, and it's not just sort of seen as a barrier, but actually adds to the sort of the diversity and skill set that you can deliver. Um, It's one of the joys, I suppose, of actually being a patient and experiencing the things for ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. And I think if if you're able to reflect on what's happening in your own life and in particular in relation to health and then bring that in a positive way to the way that you then consult with patients and see how you can then widen your approach and not just in terms of the area that you're struggling with but in, in other areas as well from what you've learned, I think that that can can make a really positive influence on practising and and probably one of the reasons why as a GP we're constantly evolving and becoming better over time. Absolutely. Yeah, also being open to that sort of change of experience. I mean, I know my own personal experience of breastfeeding and attitudes around others and things certainly informed the way in which I supported patients through it and some of that you reflected Mel you know like the advice that you got about how different people's breasts are and yet you know when you can be in hospital you know I was given a very rigid this is how you do it and of course that this is how you do it didn't 
relate to my breasts or my baby and I had to find that out for myself. So being able to have someone working with you who is actually assisting in you doing that makes it so much more um, helpful and I think takes some of that sort of angst and blame out of it because you feel like you're the, the failure when you're, you're failing to be part of what you've been told has to be the way to do it. That's right. Although it's been a really challenging time for me the last couple of years, the learning process, the feelings of failure and guilt and frustration and, and I suppose, well, grief at the loss of what I felt should have been or could have been, it's also been a really beautiful, helpful learning process for me and I, and, and I think we've, we've talked about that, um, you know, looking at these things as learning experiences, not, not as failures or as difficulties, like not focusing all on those negative things but, of course, not wanting to silver lining it either as, as I've learnt with there's a Brene Brown video on empathy and it talks about not silver lining things, but it's what I'm doing right now. I, I've just been actually really grateful in the end that it has pushed me into this this line of work. I've just been really enjoying being able to offer this assistance. I previously felt quite helpless if a woman came in with a breastfeeding issue. I mean, I had a few little tips that I could discuss, but I suppose having not done, not breastfed myself, I never was quite sure and not having done extra study in the area, I was never quite sure. And now I just feel really confident that I can actually help women, at least to some extent, with their experience. And whether it means bottle feeding or mixed feeding or formula feeding or, or whatever it is, helping them to just get through this this time in their lives if they're really struggling. That's been what I've taken out of this for myself. Yeah. And I, look, I don't necessarily think that by looking at something as a learning experience that makes it a silver lining. I think silver lining is, is almost taking something negative and going, oh, but well, at least you've got a healthy baby. Whereas looking at something that's been a struggle or a challenge and instead of kind of going down into the thought process of it shouldn't be like this and I'm a terrible mother and all that sort of thought processes that can come into your mind, which are completely normal, to kind of see it as a what can I learn and, and take away from this and it's so applicable to lots of the challenges that we have in life. Mm. So uh, we'll wrap it up now. But what, what I'll start with is, Rebecca, your resource of the week. Sure. So my resource of the week is one that I actually shared with my registrar this week, which um, is a website. It's called the Labia Library, and it's a patient education website for people who particularly think that their genitals don't look normal. Um, and it goes through what the anatomy of a labia is, what the normal differences in color and shape and size, and really just helps to explain to patients that there are huge variations in what is normal in that anatomical region um, and it's much easier to do with pictures that are from a reputable website um, and explains it really well and it's a great resource to use. Charlotte? I was going to share one that's not really relevant with the conversation that we had but was relevant for our practice. We do a lot of travel vaccinations and you know there's often a sort of a lot of angst over what websites or otherwise are the right ones to go to and 
you know, how quickly can you have the vaccine before it travel, et cetera, et cetera. And so that the one that we were talking about is the World Health Organization. It's got some really great information for international travel in terms of that sort of basic um, information that includes up-to-date maps as to where countries are, as well as information about one week before I go and is it actually going to be working, what are the general precautions, et cetera, et cetera. So that's just the who.int website, which gives you the international travel and health. Awesome. And Mel? I have two if I'm allowed, a medical and a non-medical, Ash. You can. We'll let you do it. Just this one. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the medical one, well, I suppose it depends how medical you want to call this. Uh, it's related to what we were talking about today and it's the book that Pamela Douglas has written. It sounds like I have shares in her company. I really don't. I just think she, <laughs> what she talks about is really logical and evidence-based and great. Um, so it's called The Discontented Little Baby Book. And there are lots of resources online on the Possums website as well that are purchasable and downloadable by mothers to uh, have some help and advice with breastfeeding and sleep and settling. So that was my medical resource of the week. And my non-medical resource of the week uh, is an app called Chatbooks. I've found this so helpful to take a load off with just storing memories for me. It's a, an app based in America where it syncs with whatever folder on your smartphone you would like it to as far as your photos. So I sync it with my favourites folder. So any photo that I say, oh, that's a favourite, I put the love heart on it, it will be uploaded automatically. And after 60 photos are uploaded to a book, it's sent out without me even having to request it and it just charges directly to my PayPal account and it's done. So I've got all these albums that I didn't have to sit for hours on Snapfish or whatever other website and upload them. It gives you three days to edit the book before it comes out so you can choose a different cover and put captions and things, but it's got a date and location stamped and it's just these little albums which I think are fantastic. So that's chat books. So my resource of the week following on from Beck's resource, I thought this was probably the most important resource to share and I must say that now we're doing this resource of the week thing that I've got like four or five to, <laughs> to do all the time. Um, but this this particular resource I found amazing because I work a lot with young people, so adolescents, and I really struggle, like Becca shared, about the normalisation of what's normal anatomy and also normal sex and what's considered consensual versus non-consensual. And so there's a, a website that's been made by New Zealand and it's called The Light Project. I'll link the website in the show notes on, on iTunes and SoundCloud. It's a really great resource for people who work with adolescents, for adolescents themselves and also health professionals to help young people navigate what is great sex and what is porn in relation to great sex and so how do they, how can they differentiate what is not necessarily going to translate to great sex for them and I think it's really useful because a lot of young people have access on their devices very easily to online porn and it's a great way for them to understand how this actually fits into to real life. It's been great just being able to talk about breastfeeding and how the experience of what is seen as a normal experience actually can add such value and how we as GPs have such great opportunities in all the things that we do to really add to the scope of practice that we do and have insight into how we can look after our patients. Yeah, 
I agree. It was lovely. And that's the end of the episode.